Welcome to the Jewish Lives Podcast, a monthly show by Jewish Lives, the prize-winning biography series published by Yale University Press and the Leon D. Black Foundation. I'm your host, Alessandra Walner. In each episode, we explore the life and legacy of an influential Jewish figure. Today, we're looking at the famously wise biblical monarch, King Solomon. In the second part of the show, I'll sit down with Stephen Weitzman, author of the Jewish Lives biography, Solomon, The Lure of Wisdom. If you like what you hear, rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a friendly review. Thank you in advance. You can learn more about our books at jewishlives.org. Join us as we explore the Jewish experience together. women stand before King Solomon in the hopes he will settle a high-stakes dispute. Each woman claims to be the mother of the same baby. As the women argue, Solomon simply listens. The court expects the king to employ his legendary wisdom to determine which woman is telling the truth. Instead, Solomon does something different. He calls for a sword— he declares that he will cut the baby in half, giving each woman an equal portion. The first woman agrees, but the other responds in terror, begging the king to let the first woman keep the baby unharmed. According to the tale, that was all Solomon needed to hear. He declares that the woman who wants to save the baby is the true mother. A biological mother, he argues, would never think to harm her child under any circumstance. Solomon, the son of King David and Bathsheba, was the third king of ancient Israel. According to the Bible, God is said to have appeared to Solomon in a dream, offering to grant the young monarch anything he desired. According to the record, Solomon asked for wisdom to help him rule justly. God is said to have been so pleased with this request that God blessed Solomon with wisdom, riches, and honor beyond measure. The Bible tells us that Solomon was an accomplished king. Under him, the kingdom of Israel prospered and the first temple of Jerusalem was constructed. Solomon is also believed to have written three books of the Bible, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, all three known for poetic language and powerful insights into the human experience. But Solomon's rule was not without controversy. Great wealth meant many wives and concubines. And though Solomon's excessive love of women supposedly led to his downfall, Solomon's great wisdom and great wealth are still remembered today. Esteemed biblical scholar Stephen Weitzman reintroduces readers to Solomon's story and its surprising influence in shaping Western culture in the Jewish Lives biography, Solomon, the Lure of Wisdom. Save 25% for a limited time only. Use code SOLOMON at checkout. Only at jewishlives.org.
Stephen Meitzman is the Abraham M. Ellis Professor of Hebrew and Semitic Languages and Literatures and Ella Derevoff Director of the Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. He specializes in the reception of the Hebrew Bible and the origins of Jewish culture, and he's also the author of five books. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'd love for you to start by reading us a passage from the book that gives us a sense of King Solomon. I would be happy to, and I've um, chosen a passage that really gets to the heart of why I was interested in Solomon myself. What was it that Solomon knew that the rest of us do not? It is commonly assumed today that wisdom comes from experience. Note that many of the modern wisdom figures that we've mentioned in this book are elderly, speaking with the authority of age and perspective. But experience is not the source of Solomon's wisdom. He acquired his wisdom while still a young man and all at once after a single night. His wisdom likewise does not reflect disciplined study, late night reading, rigorous training, or the influence of a wise mentor other ways in which a would-be sage might gain a measure of understanding. Solomon's wisdom is unique, unparalleled, and uncanny. This is why the narrative does not explain it or describe its contents in any detail. To do so would be to minimize its mystery, but only shows it in action, leaving us awestruck and puzzled, just as it did in the world of Solomon's day. Even so, perhaps by scrutinizing what little information is disclosed in 1 Kings, we might yet reach some understanding of what made Solomon's wisdom different from the garden variety sagacity of today's wisdom figures. That's a perfect tee-up for the next question, which is about the subtitle of the book, and that's The Lure of Wisdom. And so I'm really curious to know how, in this case, with this figure, you define wisdom and about this word choice of lure, which suggests danger. Yeah, I mean, that's getting to the heart of of what fascinated me about King Solomon. So he, of course, is very famous for his wisdom. The most famous story of his wisdom, of course, is the story about the two women who come before him and each one claiming the same baby as their own. And I was really fascinated by, not just by what he knew as such a wise person, but the impulse that led him to want wisdom in the first place. And the reason I focused on the word lure in the title is because as wise as Solomon was, it did not seem to help him in the end. And not only did his wisdom not prevent that from happening, but it seemed to actually push him in the direction of his uh, self-destruction. So I wanted to use the book to explore wisdom and also kind of the dark side of wisdom as well. So King Solomon is specifically associated with Meshalim, or in English, parables. And I wanted to ask you also about how this association further contributes to our understanding of his wisdom in particular. Yeah, so that association, we, we, we often translate the word mashal in Hebrew as parable today, but it's actually the word that lies behind the biblical word for, he, uh, for proverb, and it's part of the title of the book of Proverbs, which is traditionally attributed to King Solomon. So from the Bible itself has an association with proverbs or wise sayings, and with eventually with parables. So the reason that word is so important in the book is that Solomon himself is kind of a parable for kingship, for wisdom, as we were saying earlier. Um, he's not just a human being with a normal biography. He's a symbol of something in human experience. And you just mentioned that he is purportedly the author of a book of the Bible. And 
supposedly three that are authored by him. What's the evidence that he wrote those? Right. So the three books that are attributed to Solomon are the book of Proverbs, as we were talking about a moment ago, the book of Song of Songs, which is the most erotic song in the Hebrew Bible, and the book of Ecclesiastes, or Kohelet in Hebrew. And the reason people have thought those books were written by Solomon is because that's what these books themselves claim. So Proverbs and the Song of Songs and their very opening line um, are attributed to Solomon. And Ecclesiastes doesn't say Solomon specifically, but says that it comes from a son of King David, which people assume to be King Solomon. So from the time of the Bible itself, people have connected these three books to Solomon, but the, these texts don't specify when he wrote these to, uh, texts or on, under what circumstances, and that was for later interpreters to kind of fill in. And you just mentioned the son of King David, and he was another subject of the Jewish Lives series. And I wanted to ask you about your take on what qualities you think Solomon inherited from his father and in what ways he diverged. That's a very interesting thing. So Solomon is a very different personality from King David. King David has, you know, the most compelling story in the Hebrew Bible, I think, is the story of King David. And it's a story of a great warrior and somebody who has a lot of enemies and somebody who has a lot of fraught family relationships and he's complicated and we get a very rich portrait of him the bible on the other hand is very interested in king solomon but it keeps us on the outside of king solomon we really don't get a sense or at least i don't really get a sense from reading the book of kings what his true personality is like and so he comes across as um harder to read more more difficult to interpret a little less human than king david very wise, but in a way that's kind of alienating and kind of strange from, you know, a normal human perspective. Unfortunately, what he gets from David or what he shares with David is a kind of, sorry to say it, but a kind of rottenness at his core. He ends up going astray at the end of his life, just like King David. And unlike David, though, he doesn't repent. He doesn't have a change of heart at the end of his story. So he does some rotten things, King David does, but he does repent at the end of his life or at least before the end of his life. And King Solomon never never does that in the Bible. I want to ask about another monarch that's important in his story, the Queen of Sheba. And purportedly, she visits Solomon's kingdom. And so how is that relationship depicted? And what's the significance of her visit? Why is that given so much weight? So after Solomon acquires his wisdom, which is something that God reveals to him, he becomes very successful very quickly and successful politically in consolidating and strengthening the kingdom of Israel, successful economically and becoming very prosperous. And he wins great acclaim and he wins the respect of rulers from around the world. One of the rulers that we hear about in greatest detail is this unnamed Queen of Sheba, a very mysterious figure. We don't know where Sheba is exactly. She seems to have to travel across a desert in order to reach King Solomon, but she comes from somewhere. And um, she stands out from all the other rulers because she seems a little skeptical of Solomon's wisdom. When she comes to Jerusalem, she comes with questions, difficult questions that she asks of him. He does answer those questions to her satisfaction, and she becomes admirer as well. But I was intrigued by her skepticism. And in, and in later Islamic and Jewish tradition, people tried to fill in what those questions were, and they imagined them as riddles, very, very difficult riddles that she posed to him in a kind of trick or tried an effort to kind of trick him. 
and he's able consistently to solve them all and kind of the winner over. And in some versions of the story, they become lovers. So she has her own, own really, really rich biography that comes out of the biblical account. And you mentioned just now that he's also known for his wealth and there's this long legacy that follows him where people are looking for it. Can you tell us a little bit about how that resonates through history? Yeah, of course, a lot of people are interested in his wisdom, but a lot of people were interested in something else. And that is, how did he become so wealthy? Where did he get his wealth from? Archaeologists have actually looked for the source of Solomon's wealth in copper mines that are found in the kind of southern region of what is Israel today, and suggest that maybe he ran some kind of copper industry. There's debate about whether those discoveries are valid or not, but that's what modern scholars say. But pre-modern interpreters of the Bible had a very different approach. And they noticed that Solomon seemed to import a lot of his wealth from some very far off, exotic, and again, mysterious place called Ophir. And they wondered, well, where is this Ophir? And is it possible to get there from here? Because if we can get there, maybe we can tap into some of the wealth that Solomon enjoyed. So in the early, early um, modern period, in the, in the 16th century, the 15th and 16th century, as Europe was beginning to expand into the rest of the world, Spanish and Portuguese and eventually British or English explorers began to look for the source of Solomon's wealth. And the most famous person who was looking for it was Christopher Columbus, um, who um, we know from a commentary that he owned of Marco Polo, the great adventurer Marco Polo, that he thought that Ophir was in the Far East from his perspective and probably in the region of Japan. And that was part of what he was looking for when he came across what we now know as uh, Haiti. So you earlier mentioned that Solomon in some ways is rotten at his core and he has some notoriety in addition to being respected. And there are some stories about alliances with demons and excessive lust. And you also mentioned that there's some darker sides to wisdom. So what are those? Yeah, so readers all along the span of the Bible's interpretive history have detected something dark in the story of Solomon as told in First Kings and were led to that conclusion by the terrible downfall that he suffers at the end. And one tradition that emerges is the idea that some of his wisdom came from God, but some of it came from demonic sources. Um, and that's a story, for example, that we know from the Talmud, this very important text in Jewish tradition where Solomon captures, kidnaps essentially a demon named Asmodeus and enlists the demon's power in order to undertake his, some of his great feats. We know of another text from late antiquity known as the Testament of Solomon, where once again Solomon enlists demonic power in order to build the temple. So there is this intuition that people had that not all of Solomon's wisdom was kosher, so to speak, and some of it came from evil sources. So that's part of Solomon's darkness, as it were. And the other story, another story for which he's very famous or infamous is the fact that he had a thousand wives and concubines. He seems to have had a very large sexual appetite and to have been driven in part by lust. And the Queen of Sheba was one of his relationships, but Jewish and Christian legend tells stories of other relationships as well. And he seems to have been led astray by that lust. And I found it interesting that as smart as he was, his sexual desire was more powerful than that. And so his story ends ignobly. He is led astray. He doesn't repent. And yet his reputation 
that has lasted for over a thousand years is as this wise and wealthy king. So how did it work that he ended up coming out on top anyway? Yeah, so actually there are different traditions about whether he repented or not. And some say that he did not, and others say that he did at the end of his life, and that he's kind of like a King Lear figure near the end of his life where he's kind of wandering the world as a beggar, and he has experiences that lead him to regret and eventually repent of the sins that he committed. And some would read the book of Ecclesiastes, which sounds like it comes from a very elderly, wise person as the text that he wrote after he reached the end of his life and was looking back on things from the perspective of that kind of wisdom. But on the other hand, there's, you know, kind of a long history of whitewashing Solomon's sins. And it begins actually in the Bible itself, because we have an alternative account of his life in a book called the Book of Chronicles, which is a kind of retelling of the history of the kingship of Israel. And whoever wrote that text, we don't know the name of the person, basically retold the story of Solomon as told in the Book of Kings, but he took out all the bad stuff, all the sins, all the negative stuff. Uh, this author did the same thing with King David, took out David's adultery, and basically presents us with a uh, completely cleansed King Solomon. And that becomes part of tradition as well. So some some Jewish and Christian interpreters remembered how sinful Solomon was, and others remember just this kind of glorified version of him. And what kind of contributed to that latter image is also the fact that Solomon was thought to be an ancestor of the Messiah. So people say, well, how could the ancestor, ancestor of the Messiah you know, be a terrible person? That can't, that can't be the case. So there was some cognitive dissonance, and that too contributed to Solomon's kind of uh, glorification. So after writing this book and delving so deeply into this figure, I'm curious if there's anything that you would want to know from King Solomon if you had the opportunity to speak with him. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. So at the end of the book, the last chapter of the book, I talk about those three biblical books that are attributed to Solomon, Song of Songs, Proverbs, and, and Kohelet. And you know what we can't tell from the Bible is when he wrote those three books and in what order he wrote those three books. So a lot of interpreters would say, well, the Song of Songs, which is you know, a love poem, that must be from when he was like an adolescent. And Proverbs sounds like it comes from a very kind of uh, middle-aged person who's very kind of pragmatic and wise. And Kohelet sounds like a very disillusioned person who's kind of sees through the vanity of life. And that's a kind of traditional reading. But some interpreters challenge that and flip it on its head and say, no, Kohelet sounds like a disillusioned teenager. Proverbs sounds middle-aged. And the Song of Songs, this very passionate song, comes from Solomon at the final stages of his life. So I would love to know if I ever met him, which is the right order? What was he thinking about in the final days of his life? And was he disillusioned or did he find some reason to feel passion in life again? Well, thank you, Stephen Weitzman, for talking with the Jewish Last podcast about your book, King Solomon, The Lure of Wisdom. Thank you so much for the chance to talk with you about it. The Jewish Lives podcast is made possible by the Leon D. Black Foundation. Special thanks to our partners at Yale University Press, the Jewish Lives editorial director, Eileen Smith, series editors, Anita Shapira and Stephen J. Zipperstein, managing director, Rebecca Keyes, and to Linda Brennan and Ruby Elliott Zuckerman. The Jewish Lives podcast is hosted and produced by me, Alessandra Walner. Our music is composed by Barry J. Cohen.
As Groucho Marx once said, outside of a dog, a book is man's best friend. Inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. Learn more about our books at jewishlives.org.